Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Hodgkin Lymphoma. It's an important program that we're doing today. Uh, I know it means a lot to all of you on the call today. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and other blood cancer organizations as well. And um, it's really um, because of your interest in this topic, it's an important one. And also all of our collaborating organizations have helped to spread the word. We have over 363 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. So you come from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Northern Mauritia Islands, and United Kingdom. So really, it's really um, a credit to you that you've all chosen to spend this hour with us. Um, today's program is supported by Seattle Genetics and the Diana Napoli Fund, and we thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to in begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a professor of clinical medicine, Law Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss is going to present an overview of Hodgkin lymphoma, novel treatment approaches, clinical trial updates, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be invited to give you an overview of Hodgkin lymphoma and some of the treatment approaches and quality of life concerns. Hodgkin lymphoma is a type of malignant lymphoma, which is the term that's used for a blood cancer that involves a type of white blood cell called lymphocytes. Uh, there are two big categories of these lymphomas. Uh, there is Hodgkin lymphoma, and then there is a group of nearly 100 diseases that are called non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Hodgkin lymphoma is less common. Non-Hodgkin lymphomas are a lot more common. There may be eight to 9,000 new cases of Hodgkin lymphoma per year in the U.S., and maybe 160 to 170,000 cases of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But as I said, the non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a really diverse mixture of different uh, diseases. Hodgkin lymphoma is, uh, most of it is what's called classical Hodgkin lymphoma. It is uh, a, a malignancy of a type of lymphocyte called a B lymphocyte, but it's an abnormal primitive B lymphocyte that doesn't express the features of mature normal B lymphocytes. The characteristic uh, is an inflam in, a, in a lymph node would be an inflammatory component of normal inflammatory cells interspersed with large uh, malignant cells which sometimes can have two nuclei and are called Reed-Sternberg cells. 
About 5% of cases are what are called nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, this is a malignancy of a more mature kind of B cell and is closely related to the B lymphocyte malignancies, the so-called low-grade or slowly-growing B cell malignancies in the non-Hodgkin lymphoma category. This is a blood cancer. It's not a solid tumor. Uh, it's of cells that circulate around the body. So a solid tumor usually starts in an organ and then spreads or metastasizes from that primary site to other sites, so that we call that metastasis. So the treatment for a solid tumor, if it's localized, is usually surgery to remove it. If it is spread to other sites or metastasized, then chemotherapy or, or other systemic treatments that get to it wherever it is are appropriate. In Hodgkin lymphoma, this is a disease that is often in many places in the lymph system. So the treatment is not surgery. It is what we call systemic treatment that gets to it wherever it is. In the case of Hodgkin lymphoma, it's mostly chemotherapy, although there are some newer agents as well. We uh, look at patients with Hodgkin lymphomas and stage them according to a classification that was developed in 1972, uh, the Ann Arbor staging system. We still use it. As I will say during the course of my talk, uh, the treatment for Hodgkin lymphoma has evolved from predominantly radiation therapy to radiation chemotherapy and, and more recently to chemotherapy alone. And the Ann Arbor staging classification was most useful in the era of radiation therapy, but we still use it today with some modifications. So there are four stages, uh, stage one, two, three, and four. Stage 1 disease would be disease in a single lymph node area. Stage 2 disease would be in an area either in the upper body or lower body. So we divide the body in half by the diaphragm, which is the muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. And disease that is in two or more sites, either above or below the diaphragm, but not both, would be stage two. For example, the mediastinum, the area in the center of the chest and the neck, or lymph nodes in the back of the abdomen and the groin. The spleen is considered to be a lymph node in the staging system. It's not exactly one, but it's sort of like one, so spleen and groin nodes. Those would be stage two. Stage three would be disease in lymph nodes and or spleen above and below the diaphragm. And stage four would be disease in lymph nodes and what we call an extranodal or non-lymph node site, which is in the case of Hodgkin lymphoma, is lung, bone, or liver. Uh, Hodgkin lymphoma has a number of peculiarities, among them producing things that can cause symptoms not directly due to the tumor causing problems with an adjacent organ. Um, and three of these have been incorporated in the staging classification fevers, night sweats, or weight loss, otherwise unexplained. So if you have none of these symptoms, you'd be an A. If you have any one of these symptoms, you'd be a B. So you can be 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, 4A, 4B. There are a number of other uh, things that we use in the staging system. One of them is uh, 
a determination uh, according to the size of masses involved by the Hodgkin lymphoma, usually lymph node masses. So we refer to bulky disease and non-bulky disease. Bulky disease with very large masses, most commonly in the center of the chest area, the area called the mediastinum, and non-bulky would be smaller lymph node involvement. So um, the initial treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma has evolved over the last 40 years. Cures were obtained with extensive radiation therapy, which really was a landmark in a disease that was not curable uh, largely. And uh, through some of the more uh, extensive radiation therapy programs were modified because of the um, toxicities related to exposure of other tissues and organs outside of the tumor to the radiation therapy. So then uh, chemotherapy was added and what we call combined modality treatment with the modalities of chemotherapy, usually combination chemotherapy and radiation therapy uh, developed, and that is still one of the standard treatments used. And more recently, as chemotherapy has improved and understood better, chemotherapy alone has uh has uh, has also developed as a treatment option. So these days, uh, I, I'd like to talk just about the initial treatment in three categories. I'd like to talk about stage one and two non-bulky, stage one and two bulky, and stage three and four. So stage one and two non-bulky, the, the treatments used most commonly today are a combination of two cycles often of chemotherapy, such as the ABVD regimen, doxorubicin, bleomycin, blastin, decarbazine with radiation therapy. And more recently, uh, excellent results have also been obtained with chemotherapy only with three to six cycles of chemotherapy, such as ABVD. Um, for stage one and two bulky disease, and usually these are patients with very large masses in the chest, most commonly young women. Um, the standard treatment for many years, or the most commonly used treatment, was combined modality with chemotherapy, usually something like six cycles of chemotherapy, such as ABVD, with radiation therapy to the initially involved bulky areas. But more recently, it's been found that using PET scan as a determinant of response that if you get chemotherapy and are PET negative at the end of chemotherapy, that radiation therapy may not be needed. And in more extensive disease, stage 3, which is lymph node and or spleen disease above and below the diaphragm, or stage 4 disease with sites in bone, liver, or lung, uh, chemotherapy alone has been standard for many years. I would like to just say a little bit about PET scanning. Uh, this is the imaging that has really come into practice as a major uh, tool for staging and for gauging response. So PET scan is a uh, nuclear medicine test 
usually done with a CAT scan, which is a type of X-ray, computer-generated X-ray. And using these two together, you can see what areas are involved because they light up on the nuclear medicine scan and their size, which you can see on the CAT scan, which is a, um, a type of X-ray. So very good for staging to figure out how many sites are involved before treatment. And at the end of treatment, a negative PET scan is... <coughs> excuse me, very informative as to the risk of relapse. <coughs> so if you have a negative PET scan at the end of treatment, the chances of a relapse are 10% or less. Positive PET scan at the end of treatment is harder to interpret because there are false positives that are not due to lymphoma. And more recently, in some programs, PET scan has been done during treatment to kind of tailor the treatment according to whether the PET scan, say, after two cycles of chemotherapy is positive or negative might change the type of therapy that's given. So <clears throat> for stage 1 and 2 bulky disease, uh, ABVD for four to six cycles with radiation therapy is one approach. Uh, there is data to support uh, using uh, chemotherapy, such as six cycles of ABVD, and in patients who have a negative PET scan not doing radiation therapy, more limited data, but pretty robust data that has been holding up. And for stage three and four, uh, we've been using, the standard treatment has been six cycles of treatment. We've been using ABVD, uh, for the last 40 years. Uh, more recently, uh, there was a trial where they started with, in stage 3 and 4 disease, they, and in patients with bulky stage 2B disease, they started with two cycles of ABVD, did an interim PET scan, interim PET positive, went on to get AVD without bleomycin, for another four cycles, a total of six cycles, patients who were PET positive got a more intensive chemotherapy with the uh, escalated BIACOP regimen. So for patients, so 80% of the patients are interim PET negative, and these days we tend to drop the bleomycin uh, after two cycles in those patients, which reduces the toxicity of bleomycin to the lungs, which is the most problematic toxicity of the regimen. More recently, a new drug, which is an antibody drug conjugate, a new type of chemotherapy called brintuximab vidotin, has been introduced in relapse patients and more recently in stage 3 and 4 patients. So again, dropping bleomycin, the most toxic uh, the most problematic toxic uh, drug in the ABVD regimen, a large clinical trial compared brintuximab vidotin, the new type of chemotherapy with AVD without uh, bleomycin, and compared it to ABVD. Uh, this is what's called an antibody drug conjugate. So you have a drug which is the same mechanism as some of the conventional chemotherapy drugs, but too toxic in itself to be given to humans, you attach it to an antibody that attaches it to the Hodgkin-Reed-Sternberg cells and delivers the drug directly to the tumor cells, a different type of radiation therapy. So uh, 
Vrintuximab, Vidodin, and the uh, AVD, doxorubicin, Vivlacin, Dicarbazine, was found to be a little bit better in preventing relapses than ABVD, and is now approved for that indication. It's particularly good in patients who have a lot of risk factors that make, may make them more likely to recur, and so this is now coming to use in the front line as well. So I'll just mention uh, clinical trials. We have, there are some clinical trials looking at uh, in, in newly diagnosed patients uh, for uh, stage 1 and 2 bulky disease. We have a clinical trial where we use four cycles of the brintuximab vidotin plus AVD for stage 1 and 2 bulky disease. Uh, we had different cohorts with different iterations of, of radiation therapy, and the last cohort was just four cycles of the new regimen alone. For advanced stage disease, we have a clinical trial incorporating another type of drug which is highly effective, which is an immune drug. Uh, and these drugs are called uh, checkpoint inhibitors, they do not, they're not chemotherapy. They work by sort of unleashing inhibition of the body's immune defense to attack the tumor cells and are very effective drugs. The first time we've had very effective drugs that are not chemotherapy. So in our clinical trial, we give two cycles of ABVD. We do an interim PET scan. Interim PET negative patients continue with AVD for four cycles, as is now done standardly, and in the patients who are PET positive, instead of giving more intensive chemotherapy, we give one of the checkpoint inhibitor drugs, nivolumab plus AVD, so that's in progress. And the intergroup, uh, the uh, national cooperative groups, including the pediatric uh, group, will be launching a trial soon, which will compare the brintuximab vidotin plus AVD, which is approved, as I mentioned, uh, for stage 3 and 4 disease, with using one of the checkpoint drugs, nivolumab plus AVD, and comparing those two regimens. So for relapse disease, the uh, in patients who are fit, uh, uh, chemotherapy or chemotherapy with brintuximab or chemotherapy with one of the checkpoint drugs is used to get patients into remission, hopefully PET negative, and then go to high-dose chemotherapy with what's called autologous stem cell transplant, which is sort of a misnomer because it's really not a transplant. What is done is to give high doses of chemotherapy that would wipe out the production of blood if you didn't do anything. Before you do that, collect cells that produce blood, and you can collect them from the blood if you time it with chemotherapy in a certain way, and then give high doses of chemotherapy higher than would be tolerated, give back the cells that produce blood and reconstitute the production of blood. So that's, that can result in cures in patients who, um, who, who relapse. Um, I guess clinical trials, so I guess lastly, quality of life issues have become more and more uh, of interest and recognized. Uh, 
There are many late effects of extensive radiation therapy due to off-target exposure of other organs and tissues uh, to radiation, including second cancers and cardiovascular events. Uh, And uh, so that's been one of the reasons that uh, radiation therapy has been sort of decreased in the size of ports and used less frequently than before. But also, uh, late effects, uh, quality of life effects, and psychological effects, such as uh, persistent fatigue. Some people have talked about, have reported what's called chemo brain. Some patients will have kind of persistent fatigue, uh, even a period of time after they successfully complete treatment without relapse. And also we've found uh, and others have found that there is a increased incidence of anxiety and depression possibly uh, beyond what you would expect in, in people of the same age and characteristics in Hodgkin survivors. So I think uh, these things are going are, are under more scrutiny and you know, people are really thinking about early intervention for these types of problems. So I think I'm more or less 15 minutes. I know that's a lot of material, but I guess we should, uh, Allison, maybe we'll go ahead and talk about other issues. So thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Strauss. That was really very comprehensive and extremely informative and and certainly um, of great value to everyone on this call. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Allison Rosenthal. Um, And Dr. Rosenthal is a hematology consultant at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And uh, Dr. Rosenthal is going to address the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, and your comfort level with adherence, and follow-up care, and the benefits of communicating with the healthcare team. Um, so um, it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, thank you, Dr. Strauss. That was a very nice lead-in to a few of the things that I'm going to cover in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is the role of clinical trials and how Participating in them contributes to treatment options for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. And and just to bring some perspective to this, a lot of the drugs that Dr. Strauss just mentioned, including brentuximab, nivolumab, um, there's another drug called pembrolizumab, and the new option to have brentuximab included in the first treatment for patients with Hodgkin's, um, none of those drugs were available until the last decade. In fact, uh, brentuximab was the first drug that was FDA approved for Hodgkin lymphoma since 1977. Um, and we wouldn't have any of those agents available for our use if people hadn't participated in the clinical trials that got them approved. And so our, our trial uh, process is really to test a couple things uh, depending on how the study is designed. But the things that are being watched for on clinical trials are things like safety, toxicity, so are there newer, different side effects to newer, different treatments? How well do they work? Does this allow us to potentially combine active drugs in new combinations? And most of the new clinical trials have also incorporated um, components of quality of life and what we call patient-reported outcomes because we're understanding more and more that 
yep, it's great if we are able to get a higher response rate or maybe cure a few more people, but if it's at the risk of additional toxicity, sometimes the, the benefit doesn't always outweigh um, the deficit there. So I, I know a lot of people get concerned when they hear the word clinical trial and they don't want to be considered or feel like a, quote, guinea pig. Um, and I want everyone um, listening to understand that clinical trials are appropriate in certain settings and they are always optional. Um, it requires consent um, for your ability to participate and that can be removed at any time once you decide or don't decide to participate, but a clinical trial setting is really a way that patients are uh, managed with very high quality care in a controlled and supportive setting, um, and it allows us sometimes to get access to the newest therapies that may be available for the thing that we are trying to treat, in this case, Hodgkin's. And some clinical trials will offer immediate benefit or sometimes benefit for future patients, but they're all being designed with the with the uh, intention of moving the science forward and being able to better serve our patients. So um, I would encourage all of you to discuss the appropriateness of clinical trials with your physicians when uh, the opportunity arises. The second thing that I was asked to cover is treatment side effects, and this can be pretty wide-ranging depending where you are in your course of treatment and what type of uh, medications you've had, but at least in the realm of ABVD, which is the most commonly used first treatment for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, there are some side effects that we know are frequent and easy to manage. Um, and most commonly when people hear they're going to be getting chemotherapy, the questions I get first are, how sick am I going to be and am I going to lose my hair? Um, and certainly many patients getting this regimen do lose their hair, but not everyone does, so it's probable but not a perfect um, side effect or, an, or a guaranteed side effect. And the nausea that can come with getting any kind of chemotherapy should be easy to manage as long as you take the medications as they're prescribed and you communicate with your team as to whether or not they've been helpful. We have a lot of things uh, for nausea, and I tell my patients, if you've gone home and you've gotten sick, either you didn't follow the directions or, or we're doing a bad job of assisting you and making sure these symptoms are controlled. So be sure to speak up if that's something that you're struggling with. Um, the other thing that can be pretty concerning as a side effect with ABVD is most patients get constipated. Another thing that's really easy to work around as long as we're proactive about it. And those are kind of the, the main short-term things. We, we also watch, obviously, for any concerns with the heart or lungs or any of your, of your organs. And probably the best way to protect your lungs when getting this kind of treatment is to make sure that you're not smoking. Um, anything. So that's important to keep in mind as well. The fatigue comes at some point in time depending on how much chemotherapy you're getting. There are exercise and energy conservation strategies that your team can probably talk to you about for that, but this, this should all be temporary. Um, the risk for having neuropathy, which would be burning, numbness, tingling in your fingers, toes, and feet, um, is low with ABVD, but some people do get it. The other regimen that was discussed, the brintuximab in place of bleomycin with AVD, carries a higher risk of that happening, more likely to get neuropathy, but the good news is it tends to be a little bit more reversible in that regimen, so also something that shouldn't con um, continue to be a long-lasting or um, life-changing thing. The other thing we watch for uh, side effect-wise is risk for infection or fever. Um, and many patients are able to stay out of the hospital getting ABVD even though their blood counts are low uh, during treatment, but it's a little bit of a different risk with the other regimen, and, and those patients will often get a shot to boost their white cells to kind of minimize that risk. 
the therapies that are given, if for some reason the Hodgkin's doesn't go away uh, or comes back in spite of getting an initial treatment, have different side effects. So uh, the brentuximab medication, which is frequently used if people have recurrent or persistent lymphoma, um, does come with that risk of neuropathy. It's a lot gentler on the stomach, so less nausea and less diarrhea or constipation. Um, mainly we watch for blood counts and um, can also cause some fatigue. The other drugs, the PD-1 drugs that Dr. Strauss mentioned, which are drugs that are used to activate the immune system that um, takes advantage of the fact that you have some immune system cells that have kind of showed up to figure out what's going on near the Hodgkin cells. And unfortunately, the Hodgkin lymphoma is smarter than those cells and they kind of put them to sleep. So these medications are basically ways to wake up the immune system that's already there and get them get your T cells involved in the fight. So um, one thing that can happen as a result of that is if we turn the volume up too high, turn your immune system on too high, then the immune system can go after cells that we don't want it to, not just the lymphoma cells. So the autoimmune effects of those drugs are what I call the itises. And so we watch for any organ dysfunction that could occur otherwise, like inflammation in the lungs or liver. People can get rash, so we call that pneumonitis, hepatitis, dermatitis. And so there's a lot of things that we watch for there, but your physicians who are treating you should know exactly what those things are to keep an eye out for. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about just briefly was the comfort level with adherence and follow-up care. So it may vary from place to place exactly the interval at which you're recommended for follow-up, but the bottom line is you require follow-up pretty closely for the first two years after you've completed therapy. And that follow-up will include visits with your doctor, laboratory studies, including watching your blood counts, kidney liver function, and your electrolytes, and then also probably intermittent scans of some kind. Um, and it varies from place to place if people prefer CAT scans versus PET scans, um, and there are challenges with both, I guess I'd say, but in some way, for the first couple years, most patients intermittently get a set of scans to make sure that you remain in remission and there's no concern that the lymphoma is active at that time. There is absolutely no reason that anyone should get a second treatment without a biopsy proving that there is still active lymphoma present. And so um, if on any scan in the future there's something that pops up as concerning, a biopsy would help us to understand what that is um, and see if there's any further therapy that's needed. I guess also as part of your follow-up care, it's important that you get some counseling from someone on your team in regards to the short and long-term side effects because many patients will feel when they've completed therapy like they're kind of being dropped off of a cliff a little bit because you've been coming to see us for every other week or every couple weeks for the duration of months at a time and then suddenly you're told, well, we don't have to see you for three months. And so that can be a little bit of a scary period and so some counseling in regards to what would be worrisome, when to call us, um, you're never bothering us, so if you're concerned, certainly let your team know. And then a lot of places will offer, offer patients a survivorship care plan of sorts, which kind of summarizes what you've had for treatment, what the short and long-term effects are, what the treatment was given with the intent to do, such as did you get treated in an effort to cure your lymphoma. And that can be shared with your primary care physician if you have one, and you can also keep a copy on hand should you ever move or establish a new team somewhere else that enables them to be a little bit more um, up to speed when you are getting your follow-up care. And then finally, thinking kind of about the benefits of communicating with your health care team, 
I guess the first thing you need to do is identify who your players are. So you need to know who's on your healthcare team, and at many places that will include, at a minimum, a doctor and a nurse. Uh, many places will also have social workers, nutritionists, perhaps if you're being referred for radiation oncology, that team exists in their space as well. And you'll probably have an infusion nurse. Um, those people are your friends and oftentimes your biggest advocates. So to know who's on your team and who can help you with what kinds of questions and concerns is really important. Um, and that having that team allows for a, a whole bunch of things that benefit you. So one of those things is for you to be able to understand if what you're experiencing is normal or not normal. And for you to be able to bring up concerns or questions regarding side effects so that they can be optimally managed best that we can. So let us know what your goals and your fears are. So if my goal is to cure your lymphoma, but you have a different goal, it's important to make sure we're working towards the same thing. And to let us know if you have any constraints. Can you not make it to your appointments because your family only has one car and everyone else in your household has to go to work? Do you need assistance from a financial perspective in order to get all of your care and make sure that your follow-up happens in a timely manner? And I guess the other thing that that we often will tell our patients is we, we have a team, of, it takes a team of people to take good care of you guys. And I know you often have a team as well. So that may be friends, it may be family, it may be a significant other. But if you talk with your healthcare team, often we can also help if your team is struggling as they help you go through therapy. And the, the final thing, which is also very important that I will bring up briefly, is that if you're considering taking supplements, doing complementary uh, medications or therapies or, or seeing a naturopath, it's important that your treating team knows uh, that you're exploring those options and if you're thinking about including some of that into your care to make sure that there isn't any concern that one may counteract the other or may increase your possibility of having bad side effects from the treatment that's been prescribed. So I think with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn and hopefully that was helpful. Oh, that was incredibly helpful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Rosenthal. That was an amazing presentation and very helpful and a lot of important uh, recommendations and suggestions for our participants. We're going to take questions in just a minute or two. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, just so you know that you can, the service you can access from Cancer Care, um, and then we're going to take your questions. So please um, get ready to put both people online on the telephone with your questions. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide psychosocial support to people living with, uh, with Hodgkin lymphoma with all types of blood cancers and cancers as well, um, all ages um, and um, in all parts of the United States. And the services um, include both practical and financial assistance. We have a copay foundation. And we also, you have a chance to speak with our master's level trained oncology social workers about any questions or concerns you may have um, and to get some assistance with that, as well as we have both telephone and online support groups. Um, we recognize that uh, this is a very huge country and that people often have a difficult time going from one place to another to get uh, some of these services. Um, so sometimes when you go for your appointment, you can, of course, there meet with the different staff who can help you, perhaps a, a patient navigator, an oncology social worker, an oncology nurse, financial specialist, with any of the questions you may have. But then if something comes up again, you always can call that center. Um, and so the services here are all, you can call us on the telephone, basically 800-813-4673, or visit our website at cancercare.org. And 
I think um, in addition to the, and we have a number of online support groups, many people prefer that just because it's not on a specific time of the day. You can post any time. They are all moderated by a trained, master's level trained oncology social worker. And at the moment, we have 138 online support groups and many, many telephone support groups. And so that, um, again, you can go to our website and sign up for those or just call us um, if you're interested in these, in these group um, support uh, situations that we have. We also offer this type of education programs. We actually um, do many of them on many different topics. And so that, um, you know, uh, please do feel free to participate in them. Also, if you miss a program or even for today's program, or you're, you're on the program right now, but if you want to listen to it again, it's available as a podcast on our website. Um, and that's available um, um, usually in a day or two of the program happening. So let's say you heard something and you wanted to hear it again or share it with a family member or a friend or even with your healthcare team, um, because many of you are treated at centers that may not be comprehensive centers and it may be helpful to hear, they may want to be interested in hearing what you heard, heard spoken about today. Um, they can just visit our website and also listen to the um, podcast. Um, and. Um, and we do have publications and fact sheets. So with that being said, um, just to give you a thumbnail sketch of what we offer, and again, any resource that we give you when you get your evaluation within a day or two, all the resources that we mentioned today on the program and the resources that were in the materials that were sent to you um, before the program started, um, those will also be sent to you again because there are lots and lots of resources for all of you out there, um, so you don't have to do this all by yourself. And of course, you, it starts with the healthcare team, of course. So now we do have time for questions. Norma, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and I'll try to take as many of their questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question from our online participants. Um, so, um, and this is for Dr. Rosenthal to start with. What can I do to prevent infections after treatment? Are there vaccinations that I shouldn't get? So, directly, a little bit of a controversial topic. Um, directly after treatment, you may not mount a full response to vaccinations if your immune system is still recovering. It's difficult to measure that. That being said, the conservative thing to do is avoid live vaccines, so things like the shingles vaccine um, for at least a year after you've had chemotherapy. I think you probably would get a variable recommendation from that, especially if you ask an infectious disease doctor versus a primary care doctor or somebody else, but that's the conservative thing to do. Um, there's a lot of concern about risk for measles and whatnot given the outbreaks that have happened. and. Most people who have been vaccinated as a child have residual immunity, even if they've had chemotherapy. Um, getting things like the flu shot um, or pneumonia shot or something like that, those are inactivated vaccines, and so those pose you no, no harm. Um, you just may not mount a full response to them. Um, as far as there, is there anything you can do to prevent infection otherwise, I'm not particularly. Um, it will take a little bit of time, but the immune system should bounce back, and your risk should be fairly minimal once your blood counts are back to normal. So, Thank you. And uh, Dr. Um, Strauss, do you want to add anything? No, I think that covers it. Excellent. Thank you. The question that comes up a lot in our programs, um, I know that uh, people always are concerned about these things, and so um, thank you for addressing them. And, um, Thanks for the question. Okay. Um, 
My next question, um, again, one of our online participants. Um, so this is a question for Dr. Strauss. Is it true that people who had infectious mononucleosis are at increased risk of Hodgkin's lymphoma? Is it, it is, is it something I should worry about? Uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, there is some association with mononucleosis, which is usually seen in, uh, most common in kind of upper middle class or higher, somewhat higher middle to higher socioeconomic groups, maybe due to exposure frequency in child in early childhood to the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, so there is an association, and uh, Epstein-Barr virus can be found at times in the uh, in the DNA of the tumor cells. Uh, exactly what it's doing there is not clear. On the other hand, uh, most people in the American population have been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus at some time in their life, and most people will have antibodies showing that. So although, yes, uh, there is some increased incidence of Hodgkin lymphoma in people who've had mononucleosis than not, it is not something mononucleosis and Epstein-Barr virus exposure is so common that I don't think it's something that you know people should worry should worry about. I mean, but you know, epide, you know, if you look at big populations and you compare people who had mono to those who didn't in a huge population, there will be an excess of Hodgkin lymphoma. Practically speaking, I don't think it's something to worry about. Thank you. So we have a collective sigh of relief here. Thank you. Thanks so much for that. Um, so a question for Dr. Rosenthal. What are symptoms of Hodgkin's lymphoma relapse? Does relapse happen quickly, or is it something that comes slowly? Is it easily noticeable? So let's see. Um, I guess the things we were – so symptoms of Hodgkin's in general could be the same at presentation or at relapse. So the things that are probably most consistently seen are um, if you might have a lump or a bump somewhere that doesn't go away. You could certainly have fevers or drenching night sweats that don't have an explanation. Um, you may have weight loss that takes no effort, or maybe you've lost your appetite and lost a significant amount of weight in a short period of time, so over a couple months. Some people get itchy and they don't have a rash. Um, and people have fatigue. It's not always the same um, in the beginning as if it comes back either. And so I, if you had night sweats when you first were diagnosed with Hodgkin's, it doesn't mean you'll have night sweats if it comes back. I guess that's possible. Many people have stuff in the middle of the chest, and that can often be misdiagnosed as asthma or pneumonia or bronchitis for a while before people actually get imaging and find out that they have lymphoma. So what I tell my patients who are always very worried about missing something, um, if it is going to come back, things that come and stay probably warrant some further investigation, um, either with your regular doctor or your oncologist. Um, so I guess from a presenting 
symptom standpoint, there isn't anything that's a hard and fast rule. In the grand scheme of lymphoma, and Dr. Strauss and I both only see lymphoma, um, Hodgkin's kind of grows on the slower end of, of some of the lymphomas we see, and so most people who are diagnosed with Hodgkin's, the best guesstimate we have is that it's probably been present for weeks, if not months, so it doesn't tend to come on over a number of days. It can be there for a while before it's detectable, so um, I'm not sure if that helps to answer that question, but there isn't a, there isn't like a perfect thing to say, if this happens, you should call your doctor right away, I'm afraid. Thank you, thank you. Um, and for Dr. Strauss, a question. Um, are there precautions I can take to decrease the chances of a second cancer after finishing my Hodgkin lymphoma treatment? A decreased incidence risk? There, uh, let me see, are there precautions I can take to decrease the chances of a second oh, cancer oh, okay. after finishing my Hodgkin lymphoma treatment? Well, the, the most... Um, most of the, well, some second cancers can be the result of chemotherapy, particularly leukemias. For chemotherapy drugs that can cause damage to the blood-producing cells in the bone marrow, um, the regimens we've been using for many years do not have a high risk of that. Most of the uh, second cancers are associated with extensive radiation therapy, and they can be delayed um, for 10 to 20 years. Uh, some you can screen for, breast cancer in particular. Uh, people should be uh, getting mammograms routinely. Um, and that's very important that as as in survivor care uh that 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 is watched other cancers are a little bit harder to find early on i think that uh from the standpoint of treating physicians as i said earlier we're trying to we we think that we know that radiation therapy is an effective treatment and will probably always have a place in the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma, either in, you know not so much initially but along the course of it. But I think the you know the modern thinking about is it is that although it is a useful tool and is effective and is helpful in some circumstances, you know we we are trying to figure out when it should be used and when it's not necessary and when it is used to try to give it in the safest way possible to limit the exposure to other organs and tissues. So I think uh, for women, you know, being followed carefully with mammograms is, is key. For the other things, I don't know that we really have good ways of screening for those things. Thank you. Dr. Rosenfeld, do you want to add anything? Or? Oh, I would agree with that. I also want to add, if anyone listening has had radiation therapy, I don't want you to panic. Um, w the way that we give radiation and the dose at which radiation is given these days compared to 20 or 30 years ago is dramatically different um, in an effort to minimize some of these long-term complications. So, yes, don't 
don't disappear from follow-up. It's important that you get long-term follow-up for anything that may be a long-term consequence of the therapy you received. But um, Dr. Strauss is absolutely right. There's there's not a perfect screening test for all the possibilities. So regular follow-up care is probably the best advice I could give you. And it's that whole issue of going back to the um, so follow-up care with the oncologist and the primary care doctor. How um, what would you recommend here in terms of um, so once active for, treatment is ended? For classical Hodgkin lymphoma patients, we follow them for five years. Um, there are certainly places that, that um, depending on the therapy you received, would consider to continue following you annually for an extended period of time. And some places that would uh, transition your care either back to primary care or to a survivorship care clinic, depending on how it's set up for that long-term surveillance type thing. And Dr. Strauss? And yeah, completely agree. We also follow for five years. The greatest risk of recurrence is the first two to three years. Three to five years is, is usual because after that, uh, the chance of detecting an early, re, you know, an early relapse with a six-monthly or annual visit becomes exceedingly small after a certain period of time if there is, you know, there are rare late relapses, but you will notice something in a large lymph node most commonly and will call, you know, the oncologist uh, before your scheduled visit, no matter how often it's scheduled. So that's why we we don't see the value of really doing uh, active follow-up after three to five years. But I think, yes, uh, survivorship is, is very important, particularly in patients who've had radiation therapy. And we, I think that primary care physicians are becoming more educated in the things to look for. And there are survivor cancer survivorship programs in many institutions such as ours for the period after five years. Thank you. Important question. Thank you so much. And question uh, for Dr. Strauss now. Uh, for patients on watchful wait, wondering when treatment is needed after a few years, all the diagnostic tests should be repeated due to the risk of transformation? Well, this is a problem that really, I think, pertains more to uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. There are low-grade non-Hodgkin lymphomas where we don't begin treatment immediately since the value of doing that has not been shown. With Hodgkin lymphoma, we generally treat at time of diagnosis. The one exception to that is the 5% rare variant that I mentioned in my talk, so-called nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma, which is clinically and biologically very closely related to low-grade non-Hodgkin lymphomas where observation is most common. In the case of nodular lymphocyte-dominant Hodgkin lymphoma, the patients are followed for years and, and may not require treatment. Uh, the major indication for treatment in those patients is when it does transform into a more aggressive type of lymphoma, usually a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, such as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So maybe 1% of patients per year will have this type of transformation, and that would be the major indication for treatment. But classical Hodgkin lymphoma, which is 95% of Hodgkin lymphoma, 
we do treat uh, at diagnosis with the ex- with a high expectation that we'll be able to cure it. Thank you. And Dr. Rosenthal, did you want to add anything? Or? No, I think that explains it pretty clearly. Okay. Okay, excellent. Fantastic team. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and for Dr. Rosenthal, question. What long-term effects should I be worried about if I received only ABVD and no radiation? So the long-term effects are pretty few and far between, hopefully, from that. Um, there is a small, it's not zero, but a small risk of there being an impact on your fertility in the long term, so depending on the age at which you received it. Um, so that should be part of the conversation from the get-go as far as whether or not anything uh, needs to be arranged for fertility preservation in the future um, at, at diagnosis. The other things that are possible but not probable are a small risk of there being damage to the stem cells in the bone marrow over the long term, which would be um, seen on routine blood counts that you'd be having as part of your annual physical exam or so, and things like that shouldn't show up if they're going to at all for at least 10 years or so after therapy. Uh, There's a small risk also of there being a problem with the heart, given the red medicine, the adriamycin people receive generally um, we stay under the the dose that should that is likely to cause damage, even if you get six whole months of treatment. Um, but some people do have heart problems in the future as a result of that red medicine. There is not necessarily a screening recommendation with ultrasounds of the heart that is followed uh, routinely by anyone, but that would be a way to watch for something like that. So aside from watching blood counts and potentially for heart stuff in the long term, those are kind of the, the main secondary things that we would watch for. And uh, Dr. Um, Strauss, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, the chances of bone marrow damage or leukemia are exceedingly low there with ABVD without radiation therapy. There were some case reports, but uh, studies where they compared the risk in patients who got ABVD versus sort of matched people who didn't, didn't really find an excess of leukemias. I think heart failure uh, is a ex- very rare complication. Uh, I think children are more, uh, are more, there's more of a risk of it, but it is exceedingly small. And in clinical practice, without uh, radiation therapy as well as the chemotherapy, uh, heart problems in the long term are exceedingly uh, unusual. Thank you. And Dr. Rosenthal, do you want to add anything? No, I I agree with that completely. In, In my experience, I've had one problem with that specifically, and it was in someone else who had other reasons to also have heart problems, so probably just compounded the issue. And this would be our last question then for Dr. Rosenthal. Um, if you don't have a strong immune system due to Hodgkin's disease, would the checkpoint inhibitors work well? So the checkpoint inhibitor drugs don't work for everybody, but they they are beneficial in the vast majority of people that we use them in in the relapsed or refractory setting. Um, they I guess if your immune system is 
That question may, is difficult to answer. So if your immune system is weakened because you have an immunodeficiency, that may be a different question than if your immune system is, is weakened because you've had prior treatment. Um, so if the question is, is, is it a problem if you've had prior treatment, no. Um, the, the environment within the lymph nodes in Hodgkin's is set up for those medicines to work pretty well, regardless of what prior treatment you've had. Um, the immune deficiency thing, I think, is a little bit harder to answer because then there may be a different uh, composition to the T cells present, but um, no, it, the short answer is no. It shouldn't make it less likely that they should work. Um, thank you so much. And Dr. Strauss, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I think that's, that's right. I, I will say just about increased risk of infections having had Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma that is in long-term remission and probably cured is not so likely to be associated with a risk of infections that people with normal immunity don't usually get. We used to see it in patients who had chronic Hodgkin lymphoma that was not cured, and those patients would get a lot of what we call opportunistic infections, infections that people with normal immunity don't get. But since we've been curing the majority of people for 40 years, this type of thing is not seen very much now. Well, I want to thank our speakers. It's actually been amazing. Um, this has been a phenomenal call. I, just, uh, I can't thank you both for your expertise and compassion on the call. I also want to thank our participants who've asked such really great questions that really then allow our speakers to further elaborate on topics and those of you who've been listening as well. Now, I do know that there are some of you still in queue with questions, so I do want to address your concerns. So um, first of all, for those of you who still have questions or even who asked a question or heard an answer to a question, take it back to your healthcare team. Of course, whatever you've learned today, we want you to take it back to your healthcare team and share with them any questions you may have. But I know that many of you do like to go to other sources um, to, um, you know, to get additional information, um, to feel more informed when you speak to your healthcare team. Um, but we do want you to go to credible sites, um, credible uh, places um, for your information. So we do, in your evaluation, we'll be getting a listing of, uh, you know, really excellent blood cancer organizations that you can um, go to for information um, in terms of lymphoma. I do want to just recommend the Lymphoma Research Foundation. It's a wonderful place to get information. And the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, they basically both have tremendous information. You'll be getting that in, of course, your evaluation and your um, in the evaluations that you'll get, you'll be getting information about those resources and as well as many other resources as well. There's no absence of resources that are quite credible and excellent to go to. Um, also, for those of you who'd like to pursue further assistance for cancer care, you can simply call us and our oncology social workers will be happy to help you with any of the more psychosocial or practical and financial issues that you may have. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, um, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with um, with, with, coping with, uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma or with cancer in general or any blood cancer. We want you to know that, although you do, I, we recognize that you all sometimes do feel alone, we also want you to know that in spite of feeling alone sometimes, that there are resources for you out there and to really take advantage of them. Really, that's really important that you, um, you, know, that you have access to those, um, all those resources. And in this instance, we all feel that 
actually calling credible resources, um, the resources that we give you, their information could be very helpful to you in working with your healthcare team and in framing your questions and in learning more yourself. Many of them provide booklets on this topic um, that you can access, um, and so it's really important um, to, to actually have that information at your fingertips as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.